0: Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 29th, 2023, we continue our series titled Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. Today's sermon, Greatness on Display, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. Enjoy. The passage we're looking at this morning actually has a lot of moving parts. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that uh, up front is I don't want you to get lost. There's a lot of things going on in this passage but the thing that ties it all together is that God's greatness is on display. But greatness in ways that we would think differently a little bit. You know, if I just say hey, we're going to talk about the greatness of God, you might be thinking okay, what am I going to see? I mean, are we going to talk about God like parting, you know, the Red Sea here or is he going to move a mountain? I mean, what do you You know, we we tend to think in greatness like that, but God's grace works in different ways and his greatness is going to be displayed in some different ways. For example, it will be displayed in his personal touch on a, a young man that's sick and possessed. You'll see that you'll see the fact that he comes along and he says some words of prophecy where in other words he speaks about things that haven't happened yet to his own disciples and they don't get it. They don't really understand what he has to say to them but it's in those words that his greatness is displayed because later on he will fulfill those words and they'll remember it and they'll be able to use that as an encouragement to others to follow Jesus. His greatness is on display then in the fact that he chooses these people to serve him, these 12 disciples. And they're, I mean, they do some odd things, some dumb things at times, like every other human being on the planet, but he uses them. And then his greatness is on display even in the fact that even beyond the 12, there were people that were preaching the gospel. And they had never even met Jesus. They had had never met any of the disciples. The disciples didn't know who they were, in fact, to the point that they tried to stop them from doing what they were doing. And yet, you see God's plan at work here that there would be people beyond the 12, which would be us, that would serve the Lord. Now, if you remember last week, we, we started off talking about the fact that Jesus and three of his disciples went up on a mountain in the northern part of Israel, an area that you would know today as the Golan Heights. And this, this mountain became known as the Mount of Transfiguration because there Jesus' appearance changed. You know, the disciples had known him as a man. They, they'd seen him climb the mountain. they they've seen him. they you know, they've eaten dinner together. they have you know, they have seen all that kind of stuff together. But now when they go to the top of the mountain, his appearance changes. And he literally shows his divinity. He shows the fact that he's 100% man and he's 100% God. And it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. I mean, Peter, James, and John saw something that was absolutely incredible. It's going to greatly increase our understanding of who Jesus is. And while they're there, this cloud sort of floats over and sort of covers them up. Just like, like in the Old Testament when the children of Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert and they were sort of led by this cloud that overshadowed them. And this cloud comes and God speaks right out of the cloud and says to them, listen to him incredible moment. I mean, amazing. God the Son, in all of his glory, that's where our story starts this morning. The passage here begins about verse 37 here, where Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, are going to head down the mountain, and there's this huge crowd of people that are waiting for them there. The people that are waiting at the bottom of the mountain, though, have no idea what they've seen on the mountain. They have not gotten to see what, they got to, uh, you know, what the, the three disciples got to see. They didn't get to see Jesus transform and transfigure here into a way where they could see his divinity, too. But they will see his greatness. They will experience his greatness. That was what we'll see here between verses 37 and... And verse 50 is that his his greatness is going to be on display four ways. Now, here's the first way: You're going to see his greatness on display in his personal touch. Stop and look at the passage here with me. Let's look read verses 40 or excuse me, 37 to 42. It says, On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And he says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now, verse 38 tells us here from the beginning that that this father is so desperate that literally, with all these people there, he, he somehow can project his voice loud enough to get Jesus' attention over everybody else that is excited about seeing him. He's desperate. Verse 39, he recognizes, you know, that his son is possessed by an evil spirit. Now physically, if you look at the symptoms here, it looks like he's just having severe seizures here, but the text says it's more than just a medical condition. The boy has an evil spirit. You drop down to verse 40 here, and the father tells Jesus, I tried to get your disciples to cast, you know, the demon out, but they could not. They tried, that tells me, they really did try but they couldn't do it. Now the question is why could they not do it? Well, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's possible, you know, back in the beginning of Luke chapter nine, you know, when they first went, Jesus sent them out two by two and he sent them out all into these little villages and they went out and wherever they went, they would just, you know, if somebody was sick, they'd heal them, if they had a, a demon, they would cast it out and then they, they'd preach the kingdom of God and it was amazing and wonderful. So why couldn't they do it here? Well, in the, in the gospel of Mark, in a, the parallel story here, Mark writes about the very same story. Mark says two things that are very interesting about this particular account. One is he stops and he quotes Jesus as saying, you know, some spirits require a lot of prayer to come out. Well, that tells me here that it's very possible that they might have just prayed a very, you know, shallow kind of a prayer and then thinking if I just say it in Jesus' name like the magic words, you know, that it would come out, but it didn't. The second thing, though, you realize here about this moment is that the disciples here, who were supposed to be really ministering to this family... Mark tells us that they were arguing with some Jewish religious leaders called the scribes. And so when Jesus comes down here, he sees a family that he was expecting that his disciples would care about, but they aren't here in this particular case, and he rebukes them. Then it tells us in verse 41 that he calls for the boy to be brought to him, and they bring the boy, and as they're doing it, the demon throws the boy to the ground, verse 41, and convulses him, And then in verse 42, Jesus does three things. One is he rebukes the unclean spirit and sets him free. The second one is he heals the boy. But the third one here really hit me. And that is he gave him back to his father. Now that may sound like, okay, great. No. The idea here is is that Jesus heard his prayer. He heard the... That, that hurt. He dealt with him with compassion and he gave this boy back his life relationally. He gave him back to his father. He gave a son back in this particular case. Now, notice here what happens because verse 43 says that the people were astonished at what Jesus had done. I mean, this was not. You know, this was great, but it wasn't like Mount of Transfiguration, like he's going to instantly, you know, show himself and and show the fact that he's God here. But they were astonished. Because he was, his personal touch is great. You know, I I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but I look back on the the moment that I came to faith in Christ, and I, I think that was I don't have anything better in my life than that. That was great. The fact that God would stop and transform my thinking, my mind, like that. I didn't care about people, you know, just out doing different things, but now all of a sudden I have an eye for that. All of a sudden now I'm really thinking about my friends and I want them to hear the gospel. I never thought about that beforehand. All of a sudden, I start thinking about causes and things that maybe ought to think like God on instead of thinking like me on. I mean, everything God does is absolutely amazing. It doesn't just take a transformation on a mountain, it's what He does in my life. You know, if you look at all the different things God's done, you know, the universe, it's amazing all the stuff that God creates, he sustains. You know, if you ever, I'm kind of a nerd. I love like Planet Earth and Blue Planet and all those things like that. You watch that kind of stuff and you realize all these little intricate little things that are alive and God sustains all of them in, in this amazingly perfect balance. But none of it is any more incredible or amazing than what Jesus does in the lives of the people who trust him. None of it. The fact that God could heal the brokenhearted. The fact that God could take someone with a a mean, angry heart and turn them into someone who's caring and tender. The fact that God could take the selfish person and turn them into someone who cares about others, becomes a giver. He can change us if we'll let him. And it's a great thing. I love that, that word verse 43 uses to describe that is they were astonished. The people were overwhelmed. They didn't get to see the transfiguration, but they got to see the transformation of this young man. Now, there's a second thing here. A second thing is... Greatness is also on display in verses 43 through 45 in the prophecy. A prophecy is just like I mentioned earlier, is basically he would say something and they're all standing here going, what, what are you really talking about here? Because none of it happened yet. It's all something that's going to happen. And they, they don't understand it. The passage says they were even afraid to ask. Figuring like Maybe we should, but we don't really get what he's saying at this point. But the prophecy was something that when it does happen later, all of those people would be able to stop and look and go, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. He told us before he did it. He told us before it happened. I mean, it, it's an amazing you know, sign of his greatness. They would know all of these things. Now, what's really interesting here in the passage is they don't get this Which brings up another little thing and I don't want to spend forever on it but I do want to say this about it. There are things in the Bible that you do not understand. Um, The reason why is because God requires us to trust him. God actually made it like that. That there would be things that you would not get right now. Some things are simply mysteries. Mysteries, though, require us to trust, and we need to be OK with that. Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things he simply holds on to. Paul, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 13, which is normally the place that we think, of, oh, that's like the love chapter, but really it's about a depth of who our God really is. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he stops and he writes this. He says, from now we see in a mirror dimly. Right now, it's like I'm looking at this mirror and it's dimmed, but he goes, then I will see face to face. Now I know in part and now, and, and, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. In other words, right now, God hasn't chosen to tell me the answers to everything. There'll come a day He will, there'll come a day that I'll be ready for it. That, that, I, I, all the things, the mysteries that I haven't understood. But right now, no, He's not going to tell me all those things right now. Walking with Jesus requires faith. We're not given the answers to everything. There will come a day we will, but not today. It's not today. Even the disciples here, in verses 44 and 45, they had to walk by faith. They're walking with Jesus, and yet they don't know exactly what he's talking about here. You know, I've had some times when I've I've been sharing my faith, and the ones that stand out to me the most are the ones that will say to me, you know, I'll believe when I get all my questions answered. The problem with that is if you have all the answers you don't need to have faith. God has not designed our relationship to work like that. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 without faith it is impossible to please him. I have to trust him. I have to trust him. I mean, the only real question then, is he worthy of my trust? I mean, he's not gonna give me a single answer, but is he worthy then of what he's told me? Is he worthy of my trust? Well, you ever thought about what he's done for us? I mean, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, it tells me that he bought me with a price. Romans 8, it tells me he freed me from condemnation. I will not be condemned. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not gonna be condemned. Ephesians 1 tells me he adopted me into his family. Romans 5 tells me he justified me. Philippians 1 says he's not even done with me. He's got lots more he's gonna do and he's gonna be faithful to complete what he started in me so the question is, is he done enough? My answer is yes. I will tell you that that is exactly where spiritually you need to be at today. You need to be at a spot where you say, look, do I really believe? Because if I really believe, I trust him. Even if I don't know everything. Even if I didn't get to see the Mount of Transfiguration like all of those people that were waiting at the bottom of the the mountain, I know enough to know that he is amazing, that he loves me, and that he's not done working in me. Now there's a third thing that's on display here. His greatness is also on display in his use of broken people. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now stop for a second. Let me make sure you remember the context here. He's talking about the 12 disciples here. The 12 disciples. The 12 guys he picked out of everybody else to walk with him every day. Do you catch what, he's, what they're doing? Let me read this again. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. It's hard for me to even imagine here that the 12 disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. You would think that being close to Jesus They would have a humble and trusting spirit. It's just hard for me to imagine they could be, you know, that sort of proud and and, and that sort of arrogant, but you see it here. The 12 disciples are the closest people to Jesus on the planet. They were personally chosen by him, and yet somehow they end up in an argument about who's the greatest. You know, when I... I tend to write down questions and things to myself when I'm studying. Here's what hit me about that. Honestly, I find it actually kind of comforting that God would use broken people like these 12 yahoos who are arguing about greatness in his presence because I'm one of those. You are too. It gives me hope that God can forgive me and use me. He can look beyond the things that I've done wrong. He can forgive me and and allow me to be his servant. Now, what does he mean by the greatest? Does he mean the most skilled or talented or most loved or or most spiritually minded, I mean, most important? I have no idea. But you have to remember who these guys are. These guys are mostly fishermen. One of them is a tax collector. The rest of them, none of them have, you know, what they even did for a living even mentioned. So why would they think they were so special that they would be arguing with one another about who's the greatest? I think it's a part of creation. See, it all started with Lucifer. Lucifer was a creation, he's not eternal. Lucifer was a creation. And yet, he became so full of himself it drove him out of heaven. As creations, we can do the same thing. We can become to think about somehow that I'm better than everybody else. Well, everybody else needs to submit to the Lord, but I don't really need to. God and I have this understanding. No, you do not have an understanding with God. You don't get it then. He's the king, we're his child. That's the understanding. They get into this argument about who's the greatest. It's a great reminder to me that some conversations should not be had. But they are. Verse 47 says Jesus knew their thoughts. I mean, he always does. You can't fool God. You can't keep things from him. Verse 48 tells us that that Jesus here does something that wouldn't make a lot of sense today. He goes over and he finds this small child and he brings this small child up and has him right next to him. Now, the reason why he did that is, you have to understand, the cultural context is completely different here. In the first century, a small child was considered completely insignificant. They were the weakest member of society. They added nothing to your home, they brought no value to anything. And so, in a society out there, they were considered the least. But he's not insignificant to Jesus. No one is. And so, look at verse 48. What Jesus says, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This child was the least. Now I'll tell you why I believe that he puts a child up there. I'll stand over here because I don't have any biblical proof for this. But I'll tell you why I believe because the child wasn't arguing about who was the greatest. He just wanted to see Jesus. Let me uh, let me deal with one thing here too, because you know there there's a lot of pride going on here, and I, I just want to answer this because I, I'll undoubtedly get this question: Is it wrong to feel pride? Um, my answer is: I don't think it's always wrong to feel pride. No. I, I think there are times that I'm proud of the people that I love because they've worked hard or done something. They've made sacrifices. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my kids' accomplishments. I'm proud of my country at times. I mean, I, there are times you just wanna say, you're really thankful for all those things. When pride is a problem, it's because we take the glory for something. When pride is a problem, it's seeing yourself as better than others. It's being full of yourself. In fact, the word pride itself means to over-inflate yourself. It's a, it's a killer spiritually, pride is. It's the carbon monoxide of sin. It kills you without even seeing it. Now, there's a fourth thing here. His greatness is also on display in his plan. Starting with verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. God's plan is to use people way beyond the 12. Want to know what the problem with that is? They're all messy. You're messy. I'm messy. And Twelve struggled with that. I mean, they really do. They, they, they have a hard time with that. I mean, you can see here that, that John, by the way, this is John, the writer of the gospel of John. John here kind of struggles with that to the point that he literally says he tried to stop these guys from doing it. Listen, it's always been God's plan that you and I would respond to the gospel and we would serve the Lord. None of us could track ourselves back to saying, Yeah, Jesus personally came to me in the flesh and told me I should go do this. We believed by faith. We trusted God did a work because of the gospel message in our lives and we walk with the Lord. We serve the Lord because we want to live in obedience. But we weren't one of the 12. God uses messy people. Now, there's a couple important truths here. Every single time you get into God's word, you need to ask two questions. Whether it's, you know, you just getting up in the morning and you deciding you're gonna open up your Bible and read through a certain book of the Bible, or you go to a big Bible study or something like that, there's two questions you need to ask every single time you do that. First question is, what do I learn about God? This. Second question is, what do I learn about me? Well, let me tell you what you, when you look at this passage about his greatness being on display, his greatness being on display in the fact that he could touch a life personally and transform it and change it, His greatness on display because he could speak the future in prophecy in a way that they couldn't even still understand it, but one day they would all realize what he had said. His greatness on display in the fact that he would use broken people like the 12 to do something amazing and wonderful. His greatness on display in that his plan was that all who would believe would be serving him in some way. We learn a lot about God how amazing he is. Not just amazing up on the mountains when he transfigured, but amazing in the life of a life that's changed. Amazing in the life of of someone like me who's less than perfect, who's, who's messy in life, and yet God chooses to forgive and to use us. He's amazing. But then what do I learn about myself? Well, I'll tell you, here's the biggest thing that I learned here out of this passage is that if the disciples who walk with Jesus every single day can have a pride and humility issue, so can I. Not what I'm supposed to do. Jesus modeled humility for us. Philippians 2 tells us that that Jesus literally left the throne room of God and went into Mary's womb so that he could come here and relate to us. Jesus, uh, you know, when, in the upper room, when his disciples came together and they, 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 they came to eat the Passover supper together, he literally got down on his knees, took his own clothing off him, and began to do the work of the lowest servant in the house. And he washed their feet. I- No one else was willing to do that, but he did. Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. He paid the propitiation. He paid the satisfaction, the payment for our sins. Stuff he didn't do, we did it. That's humble. And that same humility he expects for us who call him Lord. I mean, think about Paul, the primary writer of the New Testament, how he even describes himself in the Bible. In 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's humble. God loves humility and he hates pride. James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud. Let me just say this, that's not the side you want to be on. You do not want to be on the side that God is opposed to that. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus in Luke fourteen eleven says, I will humble the proud and exalt the humble. Proverbs 3.34 says, he, will, he favors the humble. You know, wouldn't you love to be in that spot where you go, I just wish God would, would bless me. Well, you want God's favor in your life? Be humble. Our attitude has got to be, God, I know I'm only here as a result of your mercy and grace. That you could call a rock to do what I do better. But in your mercy, God, you choose to use broken, messy people like me as your servant, as your voice, as your hands? Listen, God wants to show you his glory. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't, I'd bet all the money I have, he's not going to transfigure for you and show you that he's both God and man all at the same time. Maybe in heaven he will, but I don't think it's going to do that. You know what he's waiting for? He's waiting for you humbly to say, God, you do whatever you want in me. And his glory will be revealed in you. He wants to show his glory in you, he wants to show his greatness in us by broken, messy people allowing God to do whatever he wants with our lives. You know, I don't know where you're at spiritually. Um, If you don't believe, maybe, or if you come here and maybe there was a time in your life when you had really walked with the Lord, but for whatever reason, you've kind of grown cold a little bit spiritually, and, and you're just not there where you used to be. Could I encourage you? It's time to come home. It's it's time to come back to the family of God. This morning we're gonna take communion. If you have one of these there, you can find one maybe in the seat in front of you. If you don't, I'd encourage you to slip your hand up. Somebody will bring you one. But I wanna tell you a couple of things about communion before we do this. You see, communion really is a declaration of what you believe. That's what the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what communion is really all about. Are you at a point where you could say, I believe that Jesus went to the cross and died for me, for my sins. I trust him. If you can do that, you should take communion. If you can't say that, I'd encourage you not to. The second thing is, is that communion also contains a warning. In verses 27 and 28, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And let a person examine himself, then... And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, God fully expects for you to take communion if you're a believer, but here's what he expects first, that all those things that are out of order in your life, that they would get back in order, that you would make the decision right here, God, I'm sorry, I put me before you, I did this, I did that, and you need to go, "Uh uh-uh, I need to get back right exactly where you want me, God, and then take it, then make that declaration. So here's what we're gonna do. It may seem a little bit awkward to you, but I'm gonna ask you right where you're at just simply to close your eyes because I don't want you to focus on anybody else around you. And I want you to take a moment right there and if there's business between you and the Lord that needs to happen, do it right now. The king of kings wants to show his greatness in us. This is not about us being great. This is about us falling in line and submitting our lives to the King of Kings, the one that truly is great. Father, I pray that if our hearts are right, we truly would be able to take the bread and take the juice, to remember what you have done for us and what you wanna do in us even now. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Paul writes and he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Our testimony continues. He said in verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, let no pride, let no ego stand in the way of, of us completely sacrificing everything for you, of turning our lives over to you completely. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. We're going we're to worship. And as we do, there are going to be people that are going to come down here and they'll be available to to pray with you, to talk with you. There'll be people back in the back by follow Jesus back there as well. If you want to come to him or you want to come home to him or you just want to get some things right with him, do not let your pride hold you back. Let his greatness be shown in you too. The greatness of God was on display on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yep, for sure. It was on display in that that boy whose life was touched. But it's also meant to be on display in broken, messy people like you and I serving the King of Kings. This week, make the decision that you'll surrender that all and serve Him in such a way that the world gets to see God's greatness on display in you. God bless you. Love you all. Have a good day.